SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Manukora Honey. Merriam-Webster defines honey as a sweet, viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees. And that's all good and fine, but old Miriam and Webster (laughs) used some words that I don't know and didn't really hit the mark when it comes to talking about Manukora honey. First off, Manukora isn't just sweet and viscid. It's got a rich, complex taste and a creamy, melt-in-your-mouth texture that you won't find in your average, everyday grocery store honey. And nectar of flowers doesn't cut it when you're talking about the nectar of the Manuka tea tree in New Zealand. The only nectar these bees feed on in the production of Manukora honey. In conclusion, Manukora ain't just your average boring dictionary defined honey. It's special honey. I know this firsthand. Uh, they sent us a jar, a squeeze bottle, and some honey sticks. And we've been sharing them around the office of their MGO 850 Plus, their best selling honey. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not <laughs> what you're thinking of when you think of honey. Look, have you ever think to yourself, if like, a company made grapes for the first time, we'd go nuts. It's, I feel like honey is this way, where I'm like, if anybody like made this up, we'd be going out of our minds. But this is like if honey happened again. Did you like the honey, Sari? So I moved into a new place where there's no insulation in the walls. And so uh, I've been drinking a lot of tea. And mm-hmm. sometimes that tea needs a little bit of honey. And I initially poured in this honey thinking it was going to be grocery store honey. And then I was like, that's different. And now it's a little uh, breakfast treat. It's a great breakfast treat because it's 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 a little like it's for toast. I could put like this on my butter toast and I'm like, oh, I'm having an experience. So Merriam-Webster also defines ultimate as the best or most extreme of its kind. Now that one fits Manukora to a T. Indulge in the best or most extreme sweet viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees from Manukora. If you head to manukora.com slash tangents, you can get $25 off their starter kit, which comes with the MG850 Plus Manuka Honey, a free travel pack of honey sticks, a free wooden spoon, and also a free guidebook. That's M-A-N-U-K-O-R-A dot com slash tangents to get $25 off your starter kit. Hello and welcome to SciShow Tangents, the lightly competitive science knowledge showcase. But this week, it is a completely non-competitive question answering extravaganza. And also this week, we're a damn skeleton crew. Over on the virtual science couch, we've got our resident science expert, Sari Riley. Hi, Sari. How are you? Feeling like a skeleton, just ready to hang out with my one friend. I'm losing them (laughs) very quickly. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) You sure are. And then me, the resident voice of the common people, Sam Schultz, is also here. And that's it. It's just two of us this time. Yep. And Tuna's here, too. And Tuna's great. He laughs at your jokes. Even though you can't hear him, you can still see him laughing. Tuna's our hype man. So every week on Tangents, as you know, we ask for your questions about upcoming themes for our Ask the Science Couch segment. And we get a ton of great ones. But every episode, unfortunately, we can only answer one question. So instead of just letting those perfectly good questions collect virtual dust, we've picked a few to answer today. But before we do that, so we have some semblance of normalcy, Sari, will you tell us what a question is? 
I don't know. The etymology was not as as interesting as other words. It was mm-hmm. pretty straightforward because I think since we've had language, we needed the idea of a question as opposed to a statement. That makes sense. So it was used in the early 13th century, the word question, for a philosophical or theological problem. So only really fancy pants thinkers could have questions. But then what? in the early 14th century, it became just an utterance meant to elicit an answer or discussion. Well, what were they called before that for normal people? I don't know. What the hell? There's like another word, query. And I think that might have been the word for normal people. So huh. like if you're a philosopher, you have philosophical questions. But if you were like asking a merchant how much an apple cost, you had a query. I like that it's cute, but I also like that I bet philosophers were really mad when we took the word question away from them. Probably, yeah. The the rabble have it now. Take that eggheads. Well, that's amazing. And the Proto-Indo-European root is quo, K-W-O, which says it is a stem of relative and interrogative pronouns. So any, any word with that attached or that sound attached generally was associated with asking for something, I think. What, when, who, where, why, like that all starts with the same sound and then and then morphed throughout history. Ah. But then also things like quantity or quandary or quote all came from from that root, apparently. Hell of a root. Yeah. Powerful. And not just for the philosophers, for the people. It's a, yeah. it's a word of the people. We needed that word. We yeah. had we had questions to ask. We didn't mm-hmm. know how to do it. Also, somebody asked the first question at some point, and they were probably like, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) Instead of meat, it was meat. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I think we really helped a lot of people with that. So let's move on to people's questions. At Isabella Carls 3 asks, Dear finely honed minds of the science couch, how does decomposition in peat bogs work? I love the way things get preserved in them for thousands of years. So do you. You are obsessed with peat bogs in my perception of you. I think I have brought up bog butter in Uh conversation uh, an unnatural amount of time. I'm just so thrilled by the idea of dairy products being buried in the muddy ground and then surviving for thousands of years. Because they're forgotten about, right? Is that what it is? Yeah, I think... I think the intent at one point was like, oh, I'm going to go bury some butter in my backyard. Because I don't have a refrigerator because it doesn't exist yet. Refrigeration doesn't exist, but we have this great natural refrigeration in a peat bog, which is marshy land. So so it's a wetland ecosystem, which, like it sounds, uh, is, is flooded some or all of the year. And then peat is just a brownish material that is partially decomposed leaves and other organic matter. So it's not quite dirt and not quite like crunchy autumn leaves. It's like a a slurry mush and it creates really anaerobic conditions. So it protects whatever is below it from the air. Instead of being exposed to the air, whatever is, is buried within the peat bog doesn't decompose as quickly. And so it basically, in in cold climates where also the outside weather was cold, so it's not like hot decomposing stuff, it's cold decomposing stuff, it's like a backyard refrigerator. You dig it up, and then you're like, I'm going to put some butter there, or I'm going to put this man I just killed there. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Except you shouldn't put him there. He'll never go away. Yeah. I think people stored butter there with the intent of preserving (laughs) them, and they stored corpses there with the intent of just like throwing them away in 
land that people didn't like walking in. Peat bogs don't happen anywhere, right? Are they in specific no. places? They're in specific places. A lot of the ones that we hear about with with bog bodies, which are like the mummified people that are found in peat bogs, are in Europe mm. because that's where the temperatures get cold enough. Mm. Um, so like below four degrees Celsius or below 40 degrees Fahrenheit. That limits bacterial spread in addition to just like slowing down chemical processes. Mm-hmm. But I think there are peat bogs that are closer to the equator too. So they're wet. Is the body wet when it's in the peat bog? Yeah. So it's a little bit more complicated than that. So part of it is the cold temperature. Part of it is the lack of oxygen-loving bacteria. But part of it is also as the peat continues to decompose and rot, it releases natural chemical compounds collectively called bog acids or humic acids, which have really low pH levels, so they're really acidic. And acids slow down the decaying process by, I think, deactivating enzyme responses in your cells. So like in the way that you will pickle a cucumber in vinegar, the peat bog acts as kind of like an acid that you can pickle mammalian flesh in. Is it basically the same exact thing with different chemicals involved? Yeah. I think so. So it also depends on what kind of plants are there. So in one article I was reading, sphagnum moss apparently releases a carbohydrate called sphagnin, which also extracts calcium. So there are these bog bodies that people pull out that basically look like like in a cartoon where you like shake a body and then the skeleton (laughs) flies out and then you're left with like a sack of a skin. Uh-huh. Uh, that is what's left in the peat bogs because this compound from sphagnum moss dissolves everyone's bones in the peat bog. I got to admit, I thought it was boring until you said the bone dissolving thing. I guess the butter is the less interesting one, but... The melting bones is, is really where you're going to hook people, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't think other people think it's as fun. the bog butter is as funny as you do. <laughs> Yeah, I think I, I think I get grossed out by the bodies, the idea of human corpses getting hollowed out. But butter is just so harmless. At Mandy Chu asks, who first realized a laser directed into people's eyes could correct vision and how? That's a really good question, because it seems like a very bad idea to even try to do. Well, I hate to break it to you that the idea starts out even worse. The idea didn't start with lasers. The idea Uh started as how can we reshape the part of your eye that isn't working very good to focus light, to make it better at focusing light. And to do that, I'm going to explain eye anatomy. Do you know what your eye looks like? What parts of your eye? Uh Uh-huh. Lens, retina, the hole, whatever the hole is called. Pupil. The pupil, yeah. (laughs) The thing in the back of the eye that the pupil. That's the retina. Yeah. Oh, darn. I already said that one. Okay. So if you think of your eyes like a sandwich, uh-huh. the top bread is your cornea. Okay. It's what's in front of your eye. It protects it from like scratches, but it also helps focus the light. And then next is your iris, which is the part that contracts and expands. It's the colored part. And it has the pupil in the middle. What is the parts of the sandwich? You're not even saying it. Oh, okay. The okay. The top <laughs> <laughs> The top bread is the cornea. Keeps your sandwich safe and sound. Then you have the iris, Uh which is like a piece of ham in your sandwich, but it has like a hole in the middle 
It's is a bagel sandwich. <laughs> Can oh, I retcon okay. this? It's yeah, a bagel it's a sandwich. Bagel sandwich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That makes way more sense. It's a bagel sandwich. There's a hole through the whole thing. Uh-huh. Um, pretend that the cornea protects that hole a little bit. So like the okay. top bun, the hole isn't very big. It's got saran wrap on it. It's got saran wrap on it. Yeah. That uh-huh. okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting somewhere. So the cornea is a saran wrap. Uh-huh. The top bread of your bagel with uh-huh. the hole in it is your iris. Perfect. And the pool is the pupil. Yes. Then beneath that, you've got the lens. Mm -hmm. That's your piece of ham, which is maybe kind of translucent. So like light can pass through it as well. Very sliced. Very just paper thin (laughs) honey ham. And then that light hits the bottom bread, which Uh is. Not a bagel. Not a bagel. Solid. (laughs) Very sensory. It's a What's the most sensitive bread? Oh, a marbled rod. Okay, it's a marbled rye then because that's your retina. Uh-huh. And that's where all the like cones and rods and receptors are that receive yeah. the light and then transmit it through the optic nerve to your brain. Okay. So imagine there's like an electrical cable plugged into the bottom of your sandwich and that's and your it optic goes nerve. into your brain. Yep. <laughs> okay. Um, this is why Hank has the big science metaphors. We got to the bottom of that one. <laughs> we did. Yeah, so in our saran-wrapped bagel world, because the lens is kind of hard to get to, like you'd have to surgically go under a couple of mm-hmm. layers. Eye doctors looked at the saran wrap on top, your cornea, and said, okay, the, the, that is way easier to reach. So let us figure out ways to cut it or shave it off or alter it in some way to change how it focuses light and correct ah. people's vision. In 1948, a doctor named Jose... Barquere Monaire. I'm nervous about this because they don't have lasers in 1948, do they? No, they don't. Uh, okay. He he came up with a process called keratomiliusis, which comes from the Greek words for cornea and carve. Uh-oh. And it's kind of like the worst possible way you could imagine this, but safe. You remove the cornea from the eye. Uh-huh. You flash freeze it so it doesn't like get all mushy and messed up. Okay. Then you reshape it with something called a cryolathe, which is just like (laughs) a very cold knife, I think. And then you reinsert it into the eye. So that was like the first eye surgery. It was like, okay, we've got to like freeze it, do it really fast, but really precisely, reshape your cornea, stick it back in the eye. Then there were also non-freezing related techniques that developed in parallel. So a Russian eye surgeon named Slava Fyodorov worked on something called radial keratotomy uh, in the early 1980s to help correct nearsightedness. And so if you imagine your eye bagel, it's like you cut from the center to the outside, like Mm -hmm. little spokes on a wheel, or just with like a very clean, very sharp scalpel to reduce the focusing power and like flatten the cornea a little bit. To basically like change how it focuses. They're slicing like a pizza? Yeah, yeah. They sliced the the cornea like a pizza. But then in the late 1980s, they got a little bit more advanced um, and figured out ways to do this operation inside the eye. So in Mm -hmm. situ, keratomiliusis, which is basically taking off a small sliver of the cornea and then slurping out some of the stromal tissue underneath the top layer and mm-hmm. then sealing it back up. And then in the 1990s, the first LASIK 
procedure was performed. And I never thought about what LASIK stands for, but it's just laser in situ keratomilusis. So they just tacked laser onto the front of the procedures they've been working on this whole time. And instead of using like a scalpel or a cryo lathe or any sort of knife, they used a laser because it was more precise cuts. It was like less invasive and it could cover more types of refraction problems. Like they Mm -hmm. could make more precise cuts in more different ways to reshape the cornea. And so the basic process is still the same where they like peel back the top layer and then destroy some of the stroma to reshape the cornea and then plop it back down, heal it up. But LASIK has progressed so much that like healing is really consistent and fairly painless and like the results are really consistently good because you're not like scrambling to shave off layers of a cornea while it's mm-hmm. on ice. This was a weird question because I had never thought of it. Uh, I don't wear glasses or, or do anything with vision, but there's a lot that went into eye surgery and a lot of people who are more comfortable poking around eyes than, right. than I ever would be. They didn't necessarily realize a laser could help people's eyes. They just did horrible things to people's eyes for 50 years. I, I don't know if horrible. They corrected people's vision. Well, they like okay. made it so people didn't have to wear glasses. Sometimes I bet there were there were loss of vision consequences. But How about gruesome? Can we agree on gruesome? gruesome? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Not horrible. You're right. <laughs> we got to be fair. We'll be back with more of your questions. But first, a word from our sponsors. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money. If I asked you how many subscription services you had, you think you could name them all? And before you just start naming streaming apps, remember that basically everything has a subscription these days. Video games, dating apps, food delivery apps. It's a subscription service world. We're just living in it. And with all of these subscriptions, it can feel like money is just flying out of your account. And that, frankly, sucks. But Rocket Money can help. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money can help you negotiate to lower some bills for you by up to 20%. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in total canceled subscriptions. Escape from the planet of the subscription services and stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. Sideshow Tangents is brought to you by Shopify. Hank, when you started your career as (laughs) the internet science man, was opening an online store something that you were really thinking that hard about or something you thought you'd do in a billion years? I was uh, making a shop before I was the internet science man. Oh, what? That was the first thing I did. I was that first. Wow, I got to learn my Hank history. How did that go for you? <laughs> Good. I'll, here's what I'll tell you. Like the 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 part where we start selling a thing and you get to see the number go up is so exciting. And uh, when it's just like you uh, by yourself, you got to be careful. But luckily, <laughs> yeah. Shopify has all kinds of little tools to help you with that to help you with increasing conversions, to help you with managing orders, with customer support, with all of the stuff. Uh, Because it's a, you know, I don't know. It feels like the industry standard. And so there are all kinds of plugins that you can use to make your Shopify work for you in particular. 
That's right. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from vlogging in your parents' basement to treading the boards of Carnegie Hall. Now, it was my first... basement. It was my <laughs> basement of my own home okay. that I was renting. The downstairs okay. of. <laughs> If you say so. From your first sale to your one millionth, Shopify is here to help you grow. And they've got a proven track record, my friends. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and powers entrepreneurs in 175 countries. They have, as Hank mentioned, the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And they have award-winning customer service because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tangents, all lowercase tangents. Go to shopify.com slash tangents now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S, all lowercase. Okay, we are back with another answer to one of your questions. Sociology Notes asks, why do spiders generally have eight eyes and eight legs? What are they all for? So spiders do have eight eyes. That's a fact. But generally speaking, they have two big primary eyes that function not so differently from our eyes. And the more I read about them, the more it seemed like maybe they see like the same way that we do, except they can see more of the visible or like the invisible spectrum or like light that is invisible to us. Uh, they can probably see depth, color, ultraviolet light, and like all the good stuff that they need to be killing machines and do their killing. But then they have the smaller eyes that are usually like ringed around their primary eyes or lined up on their backs of their heads or whatever. And these are more attuned to changes in light and movement than they are like full proper eyes. And they probably don't provide as clear a picture or see color or anything like that. But spiders use these eyes to basically have super peripheral vision to either warn them that they're about to get snuck up on or help them identify prey. One source I was reading said that in insects, compound eyes behave kind of similarly, where it's like one big eye with a bunch of different lenses and some of them are specialized to do different things. So some can pick up some kind of lights and some pick up some kind of shadows, things like that. So instead of having one big compound eye, for whatever reason, they decided to have a bunch of other eyes to do all those jobs for them just like individual eyes. But then also so, uh, in one thing I was reading, it said that spiders can't turn their heads. So that probably just helped for them to grow like light sensitive things on different parts of their bodies. And they just kept doing it because it was working for them. Because I think that's how evolution works, right? Yeah. They weren't getting eaten as much. So they kept doing that. Then the eight legs thing, it seems to be even more than the eyes just because they, they, they do. They just have eight legs because that's what they ended up with. They don't need them all to climb walls or anything because I think right now scientists think that there's like little sticky hairs on the end of their legs that help them climb walls. It's not like they're like latching on with eight legs. So they ended up with eight legs and they might as well keep having eight legs because a lot of research has shown that spiders missing up to two legs can do basically just as well as spiders with all eight of their legs. So they've looked at webs by six legged spiders and they look just the same as a, a web by an eight legged spider and they're not any worse at hunting than an eight legged spider is and then after losing two legs it kind of starts to mess them up and maybe they had more than eight legs some people think too and that two of their legs turned into their creepy little mouth parts that they have i was gonna so ask maybe about they have those. 10 legs sort of but the eight legs eight eyes thing i think is just a delightful coincidence 
at Andrew Tops asks, is it possible that we could get rid of a disease like for good? Or have we already done it? How is it possible or impossible? Have you heard of any diseases that we've eliminated? Do you know? Polio? Did we get rid of polio? I don't think so. Not in this way. So like it would have to be a virus or something and we'd have to get rid of every single one of them. That's like one definition of what's called disease eradication is Mm -hmm. like getting rid of everything that causes a particular disease. So like all the viruses, all the bacteria. And if you go by that definition, we haven't gotten rid of anything for good. But there's another definition of disease eradication that's basically intentionally stopping infection from a disease worldwide permanently. And two diseases fit that definition. Basically, it's like we've stopped infection. They're not going to infect anyone else, but some scientists have samples in their labs and aren't going to destroy them. If they were floating around in the world, would they would they make people sick? Or have we like... Yes. We, okay. So it's not like we've vaccinated everybody against them or something. It's, no. We've captured them and they're in jail. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> they're, in, they're in like max prison. So one of them is smallpox, um, which we do have a vaccine against. And you've probably heard about it's it's I feel like in my brain in the same category of polio of like viruses that were huge epidemics within the last couple centuries. Mm-hmm. And smallpox is specifically the one that causes like a, a big red rash and also f- severe flu like symptoms mm-hmm. um, and is caused by the variola virus. The last reported case of smallpox was in Somalia in 1977. And wow. it was officially declared eradicated by health officials in 1980. And now there's only samples of it stored in the United States and Russia. On, on the CDC's website, it says there is still smallpox research in the United States to focus on vaccines, drugs, and diagnostic tests in case anyone gets their hands on it or recreates smallpox and uh-huh. turns it into a bioweapon. But it's not possible that it's like in some animal or something somewhere. Like we're pretty sure it's not just floating around out in the world anymore. Yeah, I think that's what that gap between the last observed case and the uh-huh. officially declared eradicated was, oh. was like probably some research into, okay, everywhere that still had strains of the virus, is it there Is Mm -hmm. it anywhere that we can detect? It would need to have incubated in people in this amount of time for it to still be around or something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so safely declared that eradicated. But that's the only one in humans that that is gone. There's like a next classification called disease elimination, which is not worldwide, but reducing cases to zero and like stopping infection in a defined geographic area. So Mm -hmm. like... The example that they gave on this website was elimination of cholera from countries like Peru, but the cholera bacteria is still in other countries and like still causing infection there. So it's Mm -hmm. like eliminated, but not eradicated because I think we were getting too demoralized by only eradicating one human disease. (laughs) So we had to come up with some new benchmarks or something? Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Lower benchmarks. But then the second one that's been eradicated is a disease called Rinderpest. That sounds bad. Yeah, it's a, it's a cow disease. They have like a mix of a fever and diarrhea, also kind of like flu symptoms. And just like a lot of like discharge. It's a very like goopy disease. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it bad. spreads through cattle populations really quickly. And it doesn't uh-huh. affect humans, but we just rely on cattle for so much for like yeah. farm labor and food and milk 
So it was just like devastating to local economies, particularly ones that use cattle. And that mm-hmm. was like a really big global effort to eradicate this disease. And so a vaccine was made and distributed. When did that happen? The last reported case of rinderpest occurred in Kenya in 2001, and it was declared eradicated in 2011, so pretty Mm. recently. And that has more samples scattered in labs around the world. I think because it was such a collaborative effort to make vaccines and to study it and get rid of it in Mm -hmm. in like more recent years, there are a lot of labs that still have like small samples of it or small samples of the vaccine. And so some health officials... The, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations and the World Organization for Animal Health are two organizations that are asking labs to basically decide where they want to keep, if they want to keep any samples of rinderpest and mm-hmm. store them in that and destroy everything else because they don't like that there's so much out there. Do you, would you even need to keep that? Or is that one we could get rid of all of? It's like a complicated question that I don't really know enough about. Humans and and scientists particularly like to store things. It's like, well, just in case. I don't know how active the smallpox research is. And like Rinderpest will probably be even less active research. But they're just like, well, in case like a mutated strain comes back, we should have it. Or I don't know. Governments are just like protective of of information that they Mm -hmm. have. So we could hypothetically throw smallpox in an incinerator and it would be eradicated. Yep. Yeah, okay. I think so. But we've decided not to. Do you have any thoughts on how it is possible? How do they do it? How, I don't know. That seems like the most impossible thing to me. Just like figuring out how to get rid of every single case of it. Oh, I don't know. I feel like it would be more, more coordinated than the the current pandemic is going. But with some diseases and some disease spreads, we have a pretty good idea of what is transmitting it. So like whether it's like in dirty water, so like in the case of a lot of cholera, it's like Mm -hmm. sewage systems or plumbing systems that are Mm -hmm. like the systems at fault. And so we like start by narrowing down how the disease is caused, what systems can be failing people public health wise so that they can like get the disease and then how we want to tackle helping that. And this is like pure speculation, but my guess is that because smallpox is something that affected Europe and America, there's probably more active effort to be like, let's track down every single person who has this and like isolate them and vaccinate our children and do everything widespread. And we already sort of had the like the infrastructure to do that, to be like, when this baby comes out, it is going to get a smallpox vaccine as like part of this routine checkup. But other diseases like malaria or something, they even though there is research and money going into it, there's less of that like panicked urgency. And so you hear about organizations like finding ways to genetically modify mosquitoes or to find out better ways to diagnose the disease. Mm-hmm. But it might be harder to come up with public health efforts that are working with the communities that are most susceptible to these diseases mm-hmm. to like eliminate them. Like, like if there's a community that isn't used to getting vaccinated to like convince everyone to get vaccinated is a different task and like mm-hmm. requires a lot of local outreach and things like that. I don't know. I don't want to like speak over public health experts, but I think that's where it gets tricky, where it's like when people start swooping in to other cultures to be like, we will fix your health. I think there are a lot of challenges there that are different than, oh, no, 
people in our country are dying. We're going to like throw a bunch of money into into fixing this. If you want to ask the science couch your question and either have it answered a couple weeks after you ask it or years after you ask it, follow us on Twitter at SciShowTangents where we'll tweet out topics for upcoming episodes every week. Thank you to at Sneffen, at Cobamancer, and everybody else who tweeted us your questions for this and every episode. We couldn't do it without you and all of your great questions. Thank you. Yeah, it's fun to answer them. I learn a lot from hearing what other people ask and it is interesting for me to learn what I've been like desensitized to is interesting mm-hmm. information because I've been working in science communication for five years now. Yeah, it's fun to read questions that you didn't know that you'd never thought of before. And then all you can think about all day is how the hell somebody shot a laser into an eye. Mm-hmm. And then the real answer is more interesting than somebody just shot a laser into an eye. If you like the show and want to help us out, it's real easy to do that. First, leave us a review wherever you listen. It's super helpful and it helps us know what you think about the show. Second, tweet out your favorite moment from this episode. And finally, if you want to show your love for SciShow Tangents, just tell Tell people people about about us. us. Thank you for joining us. I have been Sam Schultz. And I've been Sari Riley. And that's it. That's that's it. Yeah, (laughs) it's just the two of us. And Tuna. Silent partner Tuna. He's waving to all of you right now. He's saying something. Hi, hi. SciShow Tangents is created by all of us and produced by Caitlin Hoffmeister and me. I also edit a lot of these episodes along with Hiroko Matsushima. Our social media organizer is Paola Garcia Prieto. Our editorial assistant is Deboki Chakravarti. Our sound design is by Joseph Tuna Medish. And we couldn't make any of this without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you. And remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lighted. But one more thing. There is an article published on June 29th, 1922 in the journal Proceedings of the Royal Society of Medicine entitled Specimen of a Miner's Egg, in which Uh. a doctor describes how a Chilean silver miner tried to smuggle a chunk of silver ore by coating it in candle wax, sticking it up his butt, and pooping (laughs) it out later like a chicken laying an egg. However, (laughs) it must not have worked, I guess. Yep. <laughs> the, the however is key. This four inch by 2.5 inch by 2.5 inch egg was too big to be squeezed back out of the butthole. In fact, the doctor wrote, quote, when gazing on this large specimen, it is hard to believe that any human being could have thrust it through his own sphincter muscle, yet the feat was actually performed, end quote. So it had to be surgically <laughs> removed and ended up in a museum. So the miner didn't even get his silver that he smuggled out. It ended up in a museum of what? Uh, like, I think a weird surgery. Oh, cool. The article is quite good. Um, we'll link it in the, the show notes. It's so short, but so hilarious. It, like, he comments on the wax of it and said it was marked on the outside by moldings of the rectal mucous membrane because the, oh. the, <laughs> the butt was really clenching around that wax egg thing. <laughs> and, and, like, it's implied that this was a common way or not common, but like if you wanted to smuggle silver out, like this is yeah. a thing. And he just chose too big of a piece of silver. His eyes were too big for his butt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>